Well, I'm thankful to have the privilege to open the Bible with you today. And my desire is just to continue doing what we've been doing all morning. And that is to exalt Jesus. For those of us who claim to follow Jesus, I hope we think about Jesus a lot. We definitely think a lot about Jesus when we're here together. And I hope privately about what Jesus did for us, how he came to us, how he died for us, how he was raised victorious. We think a lot about the past with Jesus. I think we also, although probably less, think about the future and how Jesus is coming again, how he's coming to judge those who have rejected him, to save those who've asked him for a pardon. We, we struggle with this, to keep this before our minds, but I think we know it's true and we try to live in light of this. But I wonder, and I could be wrong, but I wonder if we think least often about what Jesus is doing today. So if I ask, you know, what is Jesus doing today? What would you say to that? If somebody came to you and asked, you know, what, you follow this Jesus person, well, what's he been doing the last week? What's he been doing the last two hours? That's, that's going to be the kind of question that shapes our discussion today. What is Jesus doing today? A related question to that would be the question of where is Jesus today? Now, we could say that Jesus is with us. And he is. He's, he's in us. He's among us even this morning. He says as much in the Great Commission when he says, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. On the other hand, there's one common answer to the question of where, where Jesus is in the New Testament. For example, when, when Jesus is standing before the high priest at his trial, and the high priest asked him directly, Are you the Christ? Jesus answers, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Peter preaches this to the high priest and other religious leaders in Acts 5 when he says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on the tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and Savior. Paul says, seek those things which are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. The author of Hebrews says, after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's where Jesus is. He is seated at the right hand of his Father. But what is he doing there? There's a lot of right answers to that question. I'm not going to be able to develop most of them, but to name a few things that Jesus is doing today, we could say that Jesus is building. He promised in Matthew 16 that he would build the church, and today Jesus is building the church, sustaining her, nourishing her, protecting her. He's doing more than this. Jesus is also seated at the right hand of his Father, reigning. He's already exalted to the right hand. He's reigning. He's already king of kings. And he must reign until all of his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And there's many other things he's doing as well, like sustaining the whole universe. But it's one specific thing that Jesus is doing at the right hand of God that I want to draw our attention to today. And it's been a theme in our worship all morning. And that is that Jesus is interceding for us as our great high priest. Now, I doubt that this is a surprise to you to hear that Jesus is our high priest. We talk and we sing about it often enough. It's not that hard to find songs about this. But I wonder, after thinking about this for quite a while, especially the last week, how much this really registers in our minds that Jesus is a priest. I don't think that would have been the case if we received the book of Hebrews, for example, if we 
or Jewish Christians in the first century who had actually been to the temple in Jerusalem, who had actually offered sacrifices, given something to a priest to take and offer to God for us. I I think it would register in our minds a bit more if we said Jesus is your priest. Maybe if, if you're from a Roman Catholic background and you used to regularly confess your sins to a priest who would bring them to God, perhaps the idea that Jesus is our priest would register, connect more with you maybe, maybe in a different way. But for most of us, I, I wonder if we simply talk about Jesus as our high priest, but we don't really grasp it. It doesn't really mean anything to us. And, and more than that, even though we talk about Jesus as our prophet, priest, and king, we sang about that today, it's interesting, if you look at the Bible, that hardly anyone says Jesus is a priest. How many books in the Bible actually say Jesus is a priest? There's only one. Nobody else calls Jesus a priest. Now, to be clear, that one book talks about it a lot. But it's interesting, only one. What book is that? Hebrews, right? That's where we're going to go today, eventually. And I just want to make that clear. We will get there by God's grace, but we're not going to be there for a while, so don't, don't worry about that. So much of what I want to do is kind of fill in the background that all of the Jewish readers of the book of Hebrews would have had so that maybe when we come to Hebrews today for a little while, or maybe when you read it this week, it will register with you more of the way it might have registered with them. Now, one thing just to say about Hebrews right now is that the author of Hebrews talks a lot about Jesus being a priest. But what's pretty surprising is that the author draws out that idea primarily from one verse in the Old Testament. And it's not a verse that you might think of. Although we read it today, already. And I want you to go there to Psalm 110. That's where we're going to start and spend our time for a while. So, one, one author in the Bible talks about Jesus as a priest. He talks about it a lot. But the majority of what he says about Jesus as priest are the meditations that he has, the things he brings out, are drawn from one verse in the Old Testament, from Psalm 110. So let's look at the psalm again. Psalm 110. If you look at verse 1, Psalm 110, you'll notice even in the heading, this is important that this is a psalm of David. The Lord. You see it in capital letters, that's Yahweh, the God of Israel. David is the writer. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is the most quoted verse in the Bible. In other words, this verse is quoted throughout the New Testament. Depending on how you define a quotation or an allusion, this this verse is referenced over 20 times in the New Testament. Just that verse, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, David is speaking. He's the king. He hears Yahweh say to his Lord. Well, David's, David's the king. He hears Yahweh say to his Lord, sit at my right hand. Who is David's Lord? See, this, is, this means that there's somebody greater than David who's distinct from Yahweh. I mean, that's... This is the question about Psalm 110. And this is what Jesus gets at when he uses this text. Everybody knows that God promised that a son of David would sit on the throne and reign over an eternal kingdom. But here David is talking about someone that he's calling Lord. And so Jesus says, how can David call his son his Lord? 
In any event, what, David's he- what David hears is Yahweh saying to his Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There would come someone greater than David who would be king forever and he would take his seat at the right hand of God, of the throne of God, and rule one day over all of his enemies. Look at verse 2. Yahweh, the Lord, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. David is talking about his Lord, his master. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. David's son, his Lord, would rule with a mighty scepter. And his people would offer themselves freely to him to serve him on the day of his power, on the day of battle. They would show up to follow him. Now the last phrase of verse 3 about the morning's womb and dew is confusing to me and to everyone for hundreds of years. As John Calvin wrote, it would not be for edification to recount all the interpretations which have been given of this clause. But the idea seems to be that the king's youth would never diminish. The New Living Translation says, your strength will be renewed each day like the morning dew. I think that fits pretty well with the idea that David's son would rule forever. And with the next line, Psalm 110, verse 4, the text that the author of Hebrews uses and draws out most of his stuff about the priesthood of Jesus. Psalm 110.4 Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we need to step back and think about this verse a little bit since this is the primary text in the Old Testament from which the author of Hebrews, the only author to talk about the priesthood of Jesus, draws his thoughts. So, First thing, notice this. The rest of the psalm before and after verse 4 is about a king who would conquer his enemies. One who would be greater than David, who would take his seat at the right hand of God as king. Yet in Psalm 110.4, Yahweh declares, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. See, throughout Israel's history, the priesthood and the kingship are related, but they're distinct. One of the easy ways to think about that is just where do the kings come from and where do the priests come from? The kings come from where? From which tribe? From the tribe of Judah. And the priests come from where? Levi. And the high priest comes from whose family? From Aaron. They are distinct throughout the Old Testament accounts of Israel. But here, all this whole psalm, which is about a king everywhere else, in the center of it says... You are also a priest. Second, notice how David emphasizes the absolute certainty that this is going to happen. Yahweh has sworn. Anything God says is trustworthy, right? Because God's faithful to his words, but Yahweh has sworn. And if you think he'll change his mind, he said he will not change his mind. You're a priest forever. Third, notice that the decree is that the king would be a priest forever. Now, a lot could be said about that, right? But the obvious question is, how can any human being be a priest forever? That's in direct contrast with all the previous priests. All the priests of Israel, because Aaron died, and then his son died, and everybody dies. The priest can't continue forever. But see, that same question, how can a human being be a priest forever, is the same question that comes up if you read... 2 Samuel 7, when God promises to David, your offspring is going to sit on the throne forever. He's going to rule over an everlasting kingdom. You say, well, how can a king do that? When God says, you're a priest forever, you say, well, how can a priest do that? Lastly, from that text, perhaps the most unexpected thing about the entire verse is notice that the decree is that this king will be an eternal priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's not going to be like Aaron, after the order of Aaron. He's going to be a priest like Melchizedek. Well, how many times is Melchizedek mentioned in the Bible? How's it, how many times in the Old Testament? Two. One of them, Psalm 110.4, and only one other time in the Old Testament. 
book of Genesis. So in order to get to Hebrews, we've got to go back first. So we are going to Hebrews eventually, but we're going back first. Because you, this text, Psalm 110.4, is dependent on Genesis 14. Go back to Genesis 14. Who's the first person in the Bible called a priest? Genesis chapter 14. Abram, later called Abraham, has just returned from rescuing his nephew Lot and the people of Sodom from an alliance of kings who had taken them captive. As Abram is returning from delivering the people, another king who's not mentioned anywhere else in the chapter comes out to meet Abram. Genesis 14, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, and he said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This account is completely unexpected, and there's simply no explanation about it in Genesis. We don't know anything more about Melchizedek. We don't know who his parents are, how long he reigned. We don't know how he became a priest of God Most High. We don't know when he died. We don't know how he could be greater than Abram, who's the greatest person in the narrative so far in the Bible. Because after all, Abram gives Melchizedek a tithe. We don't understand any of this. But here he is. The first priest ever mentioned in the Bible is first identified as what? As a king. The king of Salem, likely Jerusalem. But before we would like, Melchizedek is gone from the story. Now I could just say, well, let's just go to Hebrews since that's all there is. About Melchizedek, that's all there is in the Old Testament. But we can't do it yet because we'd hardly have any idea what a priest is or even how to understand the idea that someone's going to be a priest forever. We can't get our minds around the Melchizedek thing unless we can contrast that with a priesthood. With priests who we can actually observe and see what the text says about them because it doesn't say anything else about Melchizedek. You've got to be able to compare it and contrast it with somebody. So we have to, at minimum, get a glimpse of the priesthood in the Old Testament because every Jewish person who read the, the book of Hebrews would have understood it. It would have been easy for them to have it register in their minds. Where does this idea come from that people need someone to go in between them and God? And that's what a priest does, right? A priest goes between a sinner and God. Where did that start? Where does that come from? Do you think you need someone to go between you and God? Do you need a priest? Somebody to bring you to God? Go to Exodus 20. That'll be a good place to just get a picture of this. You might know some familiar verses in Exodus 20. Right, that's where the Ten Commandments are given. But look towards the end of Exodus 20. Perhaps you remember God gives these ten words and the scene is incredible. There's thunder, lightning, the mountain is smoking and the people are trembling at the base of the mountain having been told repeatedly, don't draw near or you're going to die. And God speaks to them from the mountain. He doesn't speak everything in Exodus to them, but he speaks to them on this occasion. And what do they think when they hear the voice of God? Exodus 20, verse 18, When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen to you, but don't let God speak to us anymore or we're going to die. They're overwhelmed at the sound and the sight of the mountains, of God speaking to them, of the, the repeated warnings that they will die if they draw near. Moses, you speak to us. You go between us and God. You be our mediator to, to talk to God for us and to bring to us what He's saying. Don't let Him come directly to us or we're going to be dead. 
I think part of our problem with connecting with the idea of priests, of needing someone between us and God, may be that we just don't think it's a big deal to draw near to God or to dwell in the presence of a holy God. We may not recognize how desperately we need someone in between us and God because we can't dwell in His presence. We, we can't have that close interaction with Him as sinners. We need someone in between us to bring us to God. We, maybe He doesn't register with us. We don't think it's a big deal to come into His presence. But as the account goes on, Moses will function as that kind of mediator between Israel and God. But as the chapters go on, even in Exodus, God wants there to be a specific group of people for the rest of Israel's history who will fulfill that role as a mediator, going in between God and the people. And that's going to be the priests. And so as you read through Exodus, God ordains this whole group of people from the tribe of Levi to be priests. And specifically, there's going to be a high priest, and it's going to be Moses' brother Aaron and his descendants who are going to be the greatest person to bring the people to God. You read in texts like Exodus 28 that when Aaron goes into the house of God, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel on his heart to bring Israel to remembrance before God. Now, there are ups and downs in Aaron's life. A lot of downs are the things we remember about Aaron. But probably Aaron served pretty well most of the time during his 40 years or so as the high priest, even though we remember the bad things. But all it takes to understand the priesthood of Aaron and whether it's going to be enough is just to look at the two early narratives about the priesthood of Aaron. When Moses is up on the mountain at Sinai and God is giving Moses instructions about Aaron, about the garments he's going to wear, about how holy he needs to be, about how he's going to bring the people to God, what is Aaron doing at the bottom of the mountain? At the same time, Moses is on top of the mountain and you read the text, he's getting instructions about Aaron and all that God wants Aaron to do for the people, what is Aaron doing at the bottom of the mountain? The people come to him and say, we don't know what happened to Moses. Aaron, make gods for us. And he fashions a golden calf for them and says to the people, these are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Let's hold a feast for them tomorrow. We'll worship Yahweh this way. The, the priesthood is defective from the very beginning. Moses comes down from the mountain furious at what the people are doing. Here's Aaron, his brother, the one who's supposed to turn God's wrath away from the people, and he's doing something that's bringing God's wrath on the people. You read on and you read through Leviticus, and you read about the consecration of Aaron. And his sons would gather, and Aaron was going to be consecrated to serve the Lord as the high priest. This is in Leviticus chapter 9. And in Leviticus 10, the next verses, what happens? It's going to be Aaron and his sons are going to be the high priests. Instructions about the consecration of Aaron in Leviticus 9 and in Leviticus 10, his two sons, Nadab and Abihu, offer unauthorized fire before the Lord and God kills them. It is clear from the very beginning Aaron's priesthood is insufficient because... Aaron and his sons are sinners. And how can they bring sinners to God when they're sinners themselves? Now, that's the negative side, but I want to also talk a little bit about the positive side of the priesthood and specifically of how Aaron, and I'll include Moses in this because we're just going to look at some passages around these texts, how they intercede for the people. See, we think Aaron, you know, we think of the bad things, but most of the time he probably served well. And he and Moses often are the only people who keep the people alive because they plead the people's case before God. 
For example, in Exodus 32, where Aaron led the people to worship the calf, God comes down in Exodus 32 and he basically tells Moses, leave me alone so my wrath can burn against those people and I'm going to consume them. And what does Moses do? Moses implored the Lord. Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out? Turn from your burning wrath and relent. Remember Abraham and Isaac and all of your promises. And the text says, and the Lord relented. Turn to number 16. This happens repeatedly in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. But we'll just look at one other text because it's so gripping. Number 16. Korah, who is a Levite, so he is in the same tribe as Moses and Aaron, leads many other people to revolt, and really eventually all of the people, to revolt against the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Look at Numbers 16:19. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. Look at the response of Moses and Aaron. For the people that are trying to overthrow them, they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, will one man sin and will you be angry with all this congregation? The Lord judges Korah and the leaders of the rebellion, but not all the people, by swallowing them up alive in the earth. But he spares the people because of the intercession of Moses and Aaron. But the people are not thankful at all for this because the next day all the congregation gets up and they accuse Moses and Aaron saying, you killed the prophets of the Lord. Look at number 1642. When the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting and behold, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, get away from the midst of this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, take your censer, put fire on it from the altar, lay incense on it, carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them because wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. So Aaron took it, as Moses had said, and he ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living. And the plague was stopped. On the one hand, the priesthood is defective from the very beginning. On the other hand, these accounts of Moses and Aaron going in between sinners who deserve wrath, whom God wants to pour out his wrath on, and pleading for them, and God answering their intercession and turning his wrath away because they are standing in the gap. These are amazing things about the priesthood. As you go through the rest of the Old Testament, there are certainly some good priests in Israel's history. We don't have time to look at them. By and large, the priesthood is defective. Failing both God and the people. And that's testified to from Samuel's day with Eli and his sons all the way through the prophets. From the early prophets like Hosea to the very last writing prophet Malachi the priesthood is defective. You read the last book of your Old Testaments and it opens up with the rebuke of the priesthood. A son honors his father. A servant honors his master. God says, if I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's the fear? O priest who despise my name. They say, how have you despised my name? God says, because you offer polluted food on my altar. You take your lame animals, your blind animals, your sick animals, the ones that are going to die anyway, and that's what you bring to me. See, that's the priesthood. 
by the end of the Old Testament. Here's what you're worth to me, God. Take my blind animal. Take this one that's going to die. That's what you're worth. You're my king. Here you go. This is the priesthood in the Old Testament. There would be good and bad priests as you move forward from that point to the New Testament time. But generally speaking, that corruption continued all the way to the New Testament, all the way to Caiaphas, the high priest that presided over the sham of a trial for Jesus and led the people or was influential in putting Jesus to death. But throughout all this time, Psalm 110.4 was there in the Bible. Yahweh has sworn, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There would be a king who would be a priest. Now with that background set, the rest of what we're going to see, it's just beautiful. Because it's all about Jesus, our great high priest. It would take a whole series to go through all that Hebrews says. So I'm, I can't do that today. So for the most part, I just want us to read the text. Because I think as you have this background in mind, you will read the text and it will speak to your heart. And you'll want to worship Jesus. So I, I just want to give a taste of what it says. Maybe get you to want to read Hebrews in its entirety. And then I just want to call us to whatever the author of Hebrews calls us to in light of Jesus' priesthood. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. God's Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, which is what the priests do, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Even in that opening passage, I think that's alluding to Psalm 110. Jesus purified our sins like a priest and then he sat down at the right hand of God. By the end of the chapter, the author is directly quoting Psalm 110. Look at verse 13. To which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? By the time you get to Hebrews chapter 2, the author is specifically calling Jesus a priest by the end of chapter 2. But that becomes the dominant idea when you get to Hebrews chapter 4 at the end and read through, really, almost the entire way to chapter 10. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. We'll jump into a section, a verse that you maybe learned as a kid. Hebrews 4, verse 12. It comes on the heels of a warning that not everybody will enter God's rest. Not everybody is going to get what God promises. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart and no creature is hidden from God's sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God's words lay us bare. God knows everything about us. We're naked. We're exposed before the one that's going to judge us. Does that kind of text scare you? Does it make you timid? To think that God knows everything you thought this week? We're naked and exposed before him. His word lays us bare. Do you want to run? See, then you read verse 14, the next verse. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, 
Let's hold fast our confession because we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. And yet he never sinned. So let's with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so we can find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Jesus knows you inside and out. He knows your failures, your struggles, your fears. They're not hidden from him. And he wants you to know he's on your side. He knows what it's like to suffer, to be tempted, to be weary, and he sympathizes with your weaknesses because he's your high priest. Jesus, of all people, is the one who has his Father's ear. So hold fast to him and draw near to God through him with confidence. And you'll find grace in your time of need. The text reads right on to Hebrews 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relationship to God to offer gifts and sacrifices. The high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Nobody takes this honor to himself, but has to be called by God just as Aaron was. That's true of all high priests, but look at Jesus. Hebrews 5.5 So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by God who said to him, You're my son, today I have begotten you. And he says in another place, You're a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. What do you picture? Jesus prostrate in the garden at Gethsemane, calling out to God with loud cries and tears, pleading with God to hear him. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you're dull of hearing. Now that's what I've been feeling all week. Not that you're dull of hearing, but I keep thinking about Melchizedek, there is much to say, and it is hard to explain. But you can see that Jesus is a priest. After the order of Melchizedek, he's a king who's a priest and he's the source of eternal salvation to all who trust and obey him. From the end of Hebrews 6, where the author once again says Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, Melchizedek becomes the key person to discuss for the author of Hebrews once you get to Hebrews 7. The author sees much of what we already saw. Here's a king who's a priest and he's not from the tribe of Levi. He's greater than Abraham. He shows up without warning. He leaves before we want him to. And the author sees the connection. You know that guy Melchizedek? That resembles the Son of God. And the key point the author wants to make is if the priesthood of Aaron was sufficient, the Bible never would have said God was going to make a priest after the order of Melchizedek. You catch that? That's the key point about this, about Psalm 110.4. If Aaron's priesthood was enough to bring you to God, God never would have said to look for a priest after another order. It's just like what, God, what Hebrews says about the new covenant. If the old covenant that was given to Israel was sufficient, God never would have said, look for a new covenant. If the old priesthood was enough, God never would have said, I'm going to make a priest after a different order. That's, what, that's the point of the whole Melchizedek thing. Now look at this text, Hebrews 7, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives 
to make intercession for them. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath that Yahweh has sworn which came later than the law, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. The point in what we're saying is this. We've got a high priest like what we need. One who's seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Much could be said, but rejoice in this. Unlike the command at Sinai, don't draw near, the author says draw near. Because Jesus is the one who made a way to God and he ever lives to make intercession for you. As good as the intercession was of Moses and Aaron, don't you think Jesus is better? Who do you want pleading your case? Just give me Jesus. Jesus lives forever to make intercession for you. What's he doing at the right hand of God. He is interceding for you. He thinks about you. He sees you. He knows you. And he pleads with his Father for you. And he does it day after day. And he'll never stop. Because he always lives to make intercession for us. He's an eternal priest. There are so many beautiful texts in Hebrews. Most of them you'll just need to read on your own. But maybe we could read just a couple more just to worship Jesus. Look at Hebrews 9, verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Because if the blood of bulls and goats and so forth, the sprinkling of defiled persons, if that can sanctify in a way, Verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Or look at Hebrews 10. This will be the last text we read together before we look at application. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, wouldn't they have ceased to be offered? I mean, it's a clear point. I mean, those sacrifices aren't doing the job or else you wouldn't have to do them every year. Because wouldn't the, the worshipers, once having been cleansed, no longer have a consciousness of their sins? Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. God prepared for Jesus a body to offer. Look at verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, namely his body on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What do you say to that? What Psalm 110 and the whole Old Testament sacrificial system pointed to has come. We're forgiven, comforted, cleansed, assured, invited into God's presence all because Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is a better priest who offered a better sacrifice so we could live in a better day as members of a better covenant. 
I just want to, I just want to bring it to bear on us. As much as possible, I just want to say what things that the author of Hebrews says we should think about because of this. First, what do you do with this? I want to call on you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one path to God. You need someone to bring you to God because you've sinned and you cannot get to God on your own. The whole idea of the priesthood. And that's how Jesus can say things like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. There is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. You go to God through Jesus or you don't go any other way. Second, since Jesus is our high priest and since he has the Father's ear, hold fast to him, keep believing on him, and keep coming to the throne of grace when you're in need. The way's been opened up. Jesus has made a new and living way. When you're struggling, come to the throne of grace with confidence that Jesus made a way and he's pleading your case. When you're sad and discouraged or when you're rebuked by the word of God, which is living and powerful and pierces our souls, remember you have a high priest who sympathizes with you in your weaknesses. And he's on your side. He's not against you. Third, if you're doubting whether you're going to make it, if you're doubting whether you've got what it takes to persevere to the end, if you're doubting if you're able to be faithful to the end, Remember, Jesus lives forever. And he's able to save to the uttermost all those who draw to God through him. Jesus will never die. And he will never stop pleading your case. When Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, look up. And see him there, the one who made an end to all your sin. He's pleading for you. Fourth, when you sin as a believer, and you will, be confident that when you confess your sin, God will forgive you every time. Every time. Because Jesus intercedes for you. You think, how can we be confident Jesus will forgive us? That God will forgive us of every sin? What would we say? We would say, because Jesus died for me. That is perhaps the single best answer. Jesus died for my sins. But the New Testament, especially Hebrews, would say, how can you be confident that God will forgive you every time you sin and come to him for forgiveness? Because Jesus lives. We can say it's because he died and it's true. But the author of Hebrews would say it's because he lives. And he lives to plead your case. Brothers and sisters, I don't want you to sin. We shouldn't sin. We should run from sin. But if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he pleads your case on the basis of his death for you. And God always listens to Jesus. Always. And lastly, I just want to encourage you, rejoice that you're clean and live as though you are. Every priest would stand daily offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which could never take away sins. 
But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, he offered once for all time his body as a sacrifice, and then he sat down because the work was finished, and you're clean if you've trusted him. Do you believe it? That you're not guilty of the sins you committed this morning. And you won't be guilty of the sins you commit this week. God won't hold it against you because Jesus brought you in to a better covenant in which God says, I will remember their sins no more. You're clean. Your sins are forgiven you. This is what Hebrews keeps saying. Your conscience is pure. Jesus has secured an eternal redemption. What would it look like to live in light of that? Let's let the author of Hebrews have the last word. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let's draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. And let's consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Father, glorify your Son. Set him apart in our hearts. Help us to grasp the priesthood of Jesus. And, oh, Jesus... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for giving your life for me. Thank you for spilling your blood for us. Thank you you still care about us, even today. Thank you you died for us. And thank you you live for us. Please keep pleading for us. Keep pleading for our church. Because we'll never, we'll never make it to the end unless you keep living and you keep pleading. Amen.